This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 23rd. Today, why Democrats are seizing upon President Trump's call with Ukraine's leader, how China targets Muslim minorities, and the legacy of the Shawshank Redemption. An intelligence community whistleblower went to the inspector general and alleged that the president made a promise to a Ukrainian leader. It turns out that that promise, we don't know exactly what it is, but it had to do with trying to put pressure on Ukraine to investigate a political rival. And that rival is Joe Biden. Rachel Bade is a congressional reporter for The Post. She's been covering the fallout from this whistleblower report about the president, a report that we now know centers on a conversation between Trump and the Ukrainian president about former Vice President Joe Biden. So Biden's son, Hunter Biden, he has connections to a business that was investigated in Ukraine a while back. Hunter Biden was a paid board member for this company that was under investigation. And prosecutors dismissed the investigation. Nothing ever came of it. But President Trump is suggesting, without any evidence, that Joe Biden used his influence as vice president to protect his son. And the way that Biden fits into this is that he actually called for one of the top investigators to be dismissed. And that investigator was dismissed in Ukraine. But the thing about it is he was not the only top government official that called for this guy's ousting. I mean, there were officials all around the world who believed he wasn't tackling corruption. But clearly the Trump folks are trying to connect Biden's call for this investigator to step down with the decision to stop investigating this business that had connections to his son. So just to be clear, there is no sense, at least from our reporting so far, that there was anything improper with Joe Biden's handling of this situation. Yeah, none whatsoever. What lawmakers are looking at now is whether Trump did anything improper in pushing for Ukraine to investigate Biden, and whether this was an attempt to tarnish Biden's reputation going to the 2020 election. If you look at the context for when these conversations were happening in late July and then the whistleblower complaint happened in early August, the administration had halted military financial aid to Ukraine, which really needed that in their own internal conflicts. And so we do know that the whistleblower said there was some sort of promise that Trump made to Ukraine. And we do know it relates to this investigation with Joe Biden or Joe Biden's son. And then you look at the context of what was happening at the time. And a lot of people on Capitol Hill were very confused by why the White House had suddenly halted aid to Ukraine when it was something that everybody agreed on on a bipartisan basis. So that's where the question has arisen. Is that the promise he made to Ukraine? Did he promise some sort of financial assistance if they investigated Biden's son? And President Trump has now openly acknowledged the fact that this was the subject of, or at least one of the subjects of his conversation with the Ukrainian president at the time. Yeah. We had a perfect phone call with the president of Ukraine. 
Uh, everybody knows it. It's just a Democrat witch hunt. Here we go again. He basically admitted it. And now they're bringing this up. The one who's got the problem is Biden. And I think that that is why we're hearing Democrats once again start talking about impeachment. And now a lot of members are coming out and saying, look, the president is admitting he went to a foreign official to try to get them to turn up dirt on a political rival. I mean, that's totally shocking in and of itself. It's very important to talk about corruption. If you don't talk about corruption, why would you give money to a country that you think is, is corrupt? One of the reasons the new president got elected is he was going to stop corruption. So it's very important that on occasion you speak to somebody about corruption. Very important. And it's also remarkably similar to what the concern was around President Trump's campaign interactions with Russia in 2016, this idea that he is working with a foreign entity to find dirt on a political rival in an attempt to tarnish that rival in some way. Yeah, but this one, it seems, goes further because, you know, Robert Mueller was never able to establish that Trump specifically conspired with Russia. There was no real connection between the man himself, President Trump, then-candidate Trump, and what Russia was doing to help his campaign. But here you actually have him outwardly admitting in public that on a conversation with a foreign leader, this was a topic that he pressured them on. And of course, now it's President Trump doing this, not candidate Trump. From the Oval Office, correct. So how are Democrats reacting to this? And is this going to be the thing that escalates the calls for impeachment to a level that can't really be ignored? It's a good question. I can definitely tell you there's a shift in sentiment right now. I started seeing on Friday for the first time ever a bunch of House Democrats go on record and say, we look weak. We look feckless. We are undermining our own branch of government by not sticking up to Trump. And that is a serious rhetoric increase from what I had seen before. We obviously have a majority of House Democrats who support impeachment. But now they're actually pointing to their leadership, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who doesn't want to impeach the president, and saying that she and the leadership, by stopping something like impeachment from moving forward, they're actually greenlighting Trump to continue breaking the law, as they believe he is doing. So there's definitely been a, a change in tone. I will say there's two sort of things to watch this week, not only the reaction to Trump's communication with Ukraine, but also the unwillingness of the director of national intelligence to turn over this whistleblower complaint to Congress. That is also a big festering point right now. Traditionally, any whistleblower complaint that is deemed urgent by the inspector general is given to Congress and the intelligence committees look it over and they can talk about it and have private hearings about it, even if it's classified information. But the White House has been working with the director of national intelligence to find legal arguments to keep that complaint from coming to Congress. And that is infuriating not only the rank and file, but also Nancy Pelosi, who is feeling a lot of pressure right now to do something beyond just take a matter to the courts, which takes months if not years, to get resolved. We still don't have a resolution on a lot of the things they brought to the courts months ago. And I think that's one of the facets of this that makes the impeachment calls more urgent, that this isn't just about making a statement against the president that what he's done or what he has said publicly that he's done is wrong. 
It's that they actually can't get any more information about what actually happened because the director of national intelligence isn't turning this over. There's not a lot of confidence that courts are going to be able to act on making public this information at any point soon and that the only avenue that they have to look into it further is impeachment. That's exactly right. I mean, Democrats feel like they're running out of options here. They don't know what to do to try to get this information. They have been frantically trying to make the case to the public that Trump is breaking the law from the White House and, you know, we sh- you shouldn't – you should back impeachment because of, you know, all these different controversies. But because they can't get witnesses, they can't get documents, and the White House has kept all this information private, they haven't been able to move the needle on public sentiment, which is still against the idea of impeaching the president. So where does that leave Speaker Pelosi and what are her options now? So I think – She might have a couple of tricks up her sleeve here, even if she's still reluctant to impeach the president. I'm hearing from Democrats that there's been a lot of talk about what's called inherent contempt. It is this power of Congress that hasn't been used in almost 100 years where Congress in the past has actually jailed people or tried to fine people who will not comply with subpoenas. And this idea came up six months ago. Pelosi kind of laughed at it in a press conference and sort of dismissed it. But I'm hearing that that could be one sort of off-ramp for this escalation that we're seeing. The director of national intelligence is going to come to the Hill on Thursday, and the House Democrats are going to press him to give over this whistleblower complaint. If he does not, you are going to hear Democrats, of course, call for impeachment. But behind the scenes, there are a lot of Democrats trying to convince Pelosi that there's another step she can take, and that is to hold this guy in in contempt, inherent contempt, and potentially fine him something like $20,000 a day until he turns this information over. Now, lawyers, Democratic lawyers are telling me that they are not under any pretense that this is going to hold up legally. It's probably going to be challenged in court. But by adopting some sort of rules that would allow them to slap fines on the director of national intelligence, it would sort of calm the base and sort of de-escalate potentially the situation we see right now. You mentioned that as it stands right now, polls show that the majority of Americans are not in support of impeachment. And I'm wondering whether you think these new revelations about this phone conversation with the Ukrainian president will affect that. Because on the one hand, it seems like for the reasons we talked about, this is a much more stark example of what the allegations were from 2016. But on the other hand, if we've already established that a lot of Americans ultimately don't care if the president's campaign was talking to Russia, then they wouldn't necessarily care about this situation. Yeah, I don't know the answer yet. I know that Democrats think they can use this to try to move the needle, most of them at least. But there are a lot of Democrats on the Hill who have serious concerns that there are so many controversies that they want to investigate, so many things that they want to highlight and have hearings about, that they're not able to really break through because people are starting to become numb You know, I was talking to Dan Kildee, who is a Michigan Democrat, and he was telling me he feels like Trump basically has immunity, that he can do whatever he wants, and, you know, the public doesn't seem to back impeachment. There's a numbness that is occurring month by month by month regarding Donald Trump. He gets more and more outrageous. There's this sort of immunity that he seems to be developing just because he's such an outrageous figure. And it's a real problem that the Democrats have right now because 
there is so much out there. And I do think readers sometimes get overwhelmed at all the different things they're seeing coming from the White House. And so there's this sort of numbing that is happening. And it just makes the job of the Democrats trying to articulate just how severe or unprecedented a move by the president is, how to convey that to the public. Rachel Bade covers Congress for The Post. What we've seen is basically an effort by the government under Xi Jinping to stoke a sense of ethno-nationalism among the majority Chinese. My name is Jerry Xi. I'm the China correspondent for The Washington Post. Jerry has been reporting on how Muslim minorities in China are being targeted by President Xi's government. A lot of people have heard of the Uyghurs, hundreds of thousands of whom have been imprisoned in Chinese re-education camps. And now the government is taking action against another Muslim minority, the Hui. He has wanted to make China great again through what he calls the China dream. Uh, he says it is the, the sort of the long foretold rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And this imam I spoke to, Li Yingfei, says that, uh, you know, he is doing so at the expense of minorities. And so we are seeing sort of an effort to curtail some of the privileges that, that the Uyghurs have previously enjoyed, some of the privileges that the Hui have previously enjoyed and in other minority groups. So let's start off with who exactly are the Hui people? The Hui people are the distant descendants of Persians, Arabs, uh, basically people from Central Asia, from the Middle East, who came more than a thousand years ago as traders along the Silk Road to China. And as they came, they also brought Islam. Over the past several centuries, uh, they gradually assimilated into the rest of the Chinese empire. For all intents and purposes, culturally, they're already very, very close to the Chinese majority who are called the Han. The only thing that really separates them is religion. And unlike the rest of China, they are one of two major Muslim ethnic groups. And how has their way of life started to change? Much of the last 70 years of the People's Republic, the government more or less has given them a lot of leeway. They have been able to celebrate Ramadan. They have been able to study the Quran. They, in the last couple of decades, go on the Hajj to Saudi Arabia every year. That started changing, I would say, about five years ago. There started to be a big drive coming out of the highest levels of the Chinese government to, quote unquote, sinicize religion, to bring what was viewed as foreign religions, in this case Islam, into the, the Chinese cultural fold. So you decided to go out to a Hui community. Where did you go and what had people experienced? What did they tell you? So I, I went to a province called Gansu. This is in northwest China. It's adjacent to Xinjiang, where some of the most extreme cultural engineering has been happening. There had been a video that surfaced of these government demolition crews that were taking down the domes at mosques. And in this case of this Gadrong mosque, workers had taken apart the dome and then sort of dropped it into the prayer hall and you can see dozens of, of local worshippers outside there. 
They're wailing, they're crying, they're, they're on the ground. Um, they're absolutely devastated by what's happening. And this also just absolutely ricocheted on social media in China within Hui circles before it was quickly censored. This is a community of Hui that's sometimes in China known as the Little Mecca. If you drive south of the provincial capital, you might go for miles just seeing literally a landscape along the highway dotted with minarets, domes, like one every 100 meters. And so this has really been a kind of a, a, a Hui Muslim bastion for hundreds of years uh, in Chinese history. News in China, of course, is highly censored. But everybody sort of knows what's happening just over the mountains to the west in Xinjiang. They, they, they know that it's essentially become a police state. They know that there's hundreds of thousands of, of people who have sort of disappeared into some of these political re-education centers. But so far for the Hui, they, they feel signs that that change is coming. The, you know, one thing that I kept hearing over and over again was the winds are changing. So the Quran, for instance, is now banned from being sold in bookstores. You used to hear the calls to prayer several times a day. That's been silenced. There are reports of people who have been trying to publish other religious texts who have been jailed. In mosques all over the place, the Chinese flag is sort of being raised there are propaganda posters everywhere that, that remind the Hui that their foremost loyalty is to the Communist Party. And it kind of reveals what I think is, is kind of a, a, a deep-seated effort by the Communist Party to exert complete control. Did you talk to any representatives of the Chinese government about this? And are they relatively honest about what they're trying to do here, trying to erase Muslim identity for Hui people? Uh, This is obviously something that that the government is very sensitive about. They don't want people poking around. They sense the possibility for unrest. And when you talk to locals, you know, they acknowledge what's happening. They tell you what's happening. But when you ask a little bit deeper about, you know, how do they feel about it, there's a lot of unease. There's a lot of anxiety. And the people that you talked to, were they comfortable, like, going on the record to talk about this stuff? For the most part, no. This is the kind of place where even if I sort of, you know, try to casually walk near one of these domes that were being taken down or one of these mosques that were being renovated, um, there would be plainclothes police who would follow me and essentially drive me away. It's it's not the the worst reporting environment I've encountered in China, but it's definitely tense. And there are a lot of people, especially religious leaders, local sort of Islamic charity leaders who I spoke to, including some civil servants who are helpful uh, sources for this story, who definitely, definitely did not want to speak on the record. You said that part of the reason why this is happening is because there is this effort by the Chinese government to create somewhat of a united Chinese cultural identity. And it strikes me that that seems to be what's happening with both the Uyghurs, the the Muslim minority who are in these huge re-education camps, and also arguably what's happening in Hong Kong, where there is this effort to crack down on dissent from the mainland Chinese government. And so I'm wondering if, if there is a link between all these things and how the Chinese government is responding to people who are different. Yeah, Martine, I think I think you've absolutely touched on 
probably the biggest issue that we see in China today, which is an effort by the government to kind of push this nationalism button. This is an effort that's been accelerating under President Xi Jinping, and this is something that we're going to see for years to come, I think, this idea that you are Chinese, you are a loyal subject of the People's Republic, uh, and this is your home, this is your blood, and that's something that you can never change. Jerry, thank you so much. Sure, thanks so much, Martin. Jerry Shi covers China for The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. Why a movie that failed at the box office is still a fan favorite 25 years later. People ask me my favorite movie, and I, and I want to say Shawshank Redemption sometimes, but it's also kind of like, you know, a sort of cliche favorite movie. It's the number one movie on IMDb in terms of user ranking. So me saying Shawshank Redemption is my favorite movie, it's like, oh, well, that's everyone's favorite movie. But, you know, it might actually be. So I should just say it. My name is Zachary Pincus Roth. I'm an editor in the style section. I must admit I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. Looked like a stiff breeze would blow him over. That was my first impression of the man. Shawshank Redemption is a movie about a banker played by Tim Robbins named Andy who ends up in prison, he's wrongly convicted, and he befriends Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and we just sort of see the many years of their friendship play out in prison. I saw The Shawshank Redemption in 1984 when it came out. I was 14 years old, and it just blew me away. I mean, I think now, sort of, about why I would have liked it so much, I think... Part of it was how this movie was just arguing for all of the good things in life to win out in the end, for justice and kindness and making the most of your life and hope and all these things to sort of really win out. And so I think the movie was sort of aspirational in that way, at least for me. Morgan Freeman talked a little bit about why he thought the movie failed at the box office. The reason it didn't do well at the box office, I'm sure, is that nobody could say its name. Nobody could repeat its title. He felt that the title was not great and people would come to him and get the title wrong. saw that shimshunk reduction and it was great. Uh, but if you can't tell people the name of what a movie you saw, and I don't care how good you think it is, they're not going to remember it and go see it. One thing he talked about was how this movie is really about friendship. Oh, why does this story resonate? I would, we don't know. I, I certainly don't know uh, what it is about this story that grabs people. So might just be the character redemptions or, well, it, it was a well-written story about uh, men. And Tim Robbins, when I talked to him, he felt that there aren't that many movies about just two men bonding that don't involve 
car chases and things like that, that it's just sort of a serious movie about male friendship. Andy. Red. If you ever get out of here, do me a favor. So one scene I really like is when Tim Robbins' character, Andy, tells Morgan Freeman's character about this thing that he's buried for him out in this field somewhere. It's like something out of a Robert Frost poem. Promise me, Red, if you ever get out, find that spot. At the base of that wall, you'll find a rock that has no earthly business in a main hayfield. A piece of black volcanic glass. There's something buried under it I want you to have. What, Andy? What's buried under there? In telling Red that there is this thing that he should aspire to get outside of prison, it kind of gives him this hope, and it's sort of a gift from one friend to another of giving him hope, which I think is a really great sentiment. I think you really want to believe in those things, and I think the movie sort of helps you believe. Zachary Pincus Roth is an editor for the Post-Style section. that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate people who rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and we take a lot of your feedback to heart, even when that feedback is about how our episodes often fail to arrive on time in the morning. But for the record, that's because we're actually an afternoon podcast. We come out at 5 p.m. Eastern time every day, or sometimes even a little bit earlier. So hopefully that helps to clarify things. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.